This morning's reading is from the book of Exodus. It's chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. So I'll give you a moment to turn to that. And if you want to use one of the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 40. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You should not murder. You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is in your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the reading of the word. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Mark and Diane. Hey, good morning. Welcome to SOMA. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, special welcome to those in our new balcony space. Uh, throughout the history of the church, the, uh, the balcony has uh, traditionally been a great place for naps. And so uh, I'm not going to take it uh, personally if that, if that happens today. But uh, thank you guys so much for being here today. As you can tell from the reading, we're continuing our, our story or our study in the book of Exodus. Uh, and today we come to the Ten Commandments, or as the scriptures call them, as the Hebrew scriptures refer to them, the Ten Words. And so here's what's happened in the story up to this point. God has brought his people out of slavery. He has brought them to himself. He brings them to this mountain we saw last week, and he says, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. I'm going to make you a holy nation. And now, here in Exodus 20, what he does is he begins to give his law to show his people how to live. This is probably one of the most familiar passages in the entire Bible. Even if you're not a religious person, you've probably heard of the Ten Commandments. And yet, 
I would submit that it is probably also one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible. I don't know what you think of when you think we're going to talk about the Ten Commandments today. We're going to talk about the law of God. Maybe, you know, you think of that old Charlton Heston movie. Maybe you think of lawsuits over the First Amendment and, and monuments on courthouse lawns. Maybe you're repulsed by the idea. Maybe you're just bored or indifferent to the idea. Maybe you feel like this is going to be somewhere between like a root canal and jury duty. Uh, maybe, maybe you, you don't exactly know what to do with the Ten Commandments, but it's probably safe to assume that you didn't wake up this morning bouncing off the walls thinking about, we're going to come here and we're going to talk about the law of God. We're going to talk about the Ten Commandments. But when you read the stories and the writings of the people of God throughout history, not just the people inside the Bible, but the people outside the Bible, you see that they had a completely different view of the law of God, that they loved the law of God with an explosive joy. I'm just going to give you a few examples. Psalm 1, blessed, happy, flourishing, full of joy and well-being and happiness is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his, not just his duty, not just the thing that he has to do, not his oppression, not his drudgery, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. In other words, giving life to the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. We could, we could read Psalm 119. We're not going to do that today because it's 176 verses long. But the whole thing, 176 verses, is a love song to the law of God. About how the law of God is the way that we find joy and life and happiness and freedom and delight. Unless you think this is just an Old Testament thing, you go to the book of James, and you look at what James in James 1 calls the law. He says, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, not just a hearer, but a doer, will be blessed in his doing. All throughout the scriptures and all throughout the history of the church, you find that the people of God delight in the law of God. They don't just follow the law of God. They don't just languish under the oppression of the law of God. They don't just keep the law of God so God doesn't zap them with a thunderbolt. They delight in the law of God. They see it as the law of liberty. They see it as the law of freedom. Now, that probably creates some dissonance for most of us in this room, doesn't it? Because this is not the way we typically think of the law of God. And so if that's the, the, the testimony of God's people throughout history, then we've got to take a moment and we've got to ask ourselves, what did they see that we're missing? We tend to see God's law as harsh and vindictive and antiquated because when it really comes down to it, that's how many of us view God. 
But what I want to show you today is that God's law is a blessing. It is the law of freedom. It is the one thing that brings delight to our souls. It is the thing that brings flourishing to our lives and that brings blessing to the world. The 10 words are, are, are like the constitution of ancient Israel. So think about where we are. The Israelites have been slaves for 400 years. Generation after generation after generation has lived and died and known nothing but slavery. And now they're taken out into the wilderness and, and they don't know what to do with their freedom. They don't know how to live as free human beings. And so God gives them this law and he doesn't give them this law to keep them oppressed. He doesn't give them this law to press them down. He gives them this law to show them how to live a life of freedom. See, as human beings, we need to learn to live a life of freedom. I don't know if you think about it that way. But I would submit to you that our fundamental problem as human beings is that we think we know how to be free, and we end up enslaving ourselves. Go all the way back to the beginning of the story, Genesis chapter 3. That's the lie that our first parents believed. We believed we knew how to be free. We believed we knew how to live the fully human life. We believed that we knew better than God. And it ended up bringing death and destruction and pain and suffering and oppression and injustice into God's world. He gives us his law to teach us how to be free. See, true freedom is not the same thing as unrestricted choice. As Americans, that's how we've kind of been conditioned to think about freedom. Freedom means no one tells me what to do. Let me just ask you to stop for a minute. How's that working out for us? I mean, we have greater personal autonomy than any society in the history of the world. You and I have more choices than any group of people who have ever lived anywhere on the face of the planet. And yet we have unparalleled rates of anxiety and depression. Why is that? It's because freedom, true freedom, is not just freedom from something. It's freedom for something. It's not just being liberated from something. It's being called in to something better. That's what God does in this text today. He gives us the gift of his good law, and he shows us that it is the law of freedom. So four things I want to show you about the law of God today in this text today. And these are, these are four things that if you get these things, not just in your head, but if you get them in your heart, you'll be on your way to walking God's road of freedom. So four things we see about God's law. One, God's law is rooted in his grace. Two, God's law is rooted in his character. Three, God's law is rooted in our good. Four, God's law shows us our need. It's rooted in his grace. It's rooted in his character. It's rooted in our good, and it shows us our need. First thing, God's law is rooted in God's grace. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, that's like the preamble to this constitution, but it is vitally important, because if you miss this, you miss the point of the whole thing. Exodus 20, comes after Exodus 1 through 19. That's your brilliant theological insight for the day. That's what I've got for you. 20 comes after 19. But that is vitally important if you're going to understand God's law correctly. Because what's Exodus 1 through 19? It is this breathtaking story of God's grace. 
God redeems his people. God rescues his people from slavery when they are utterly helpless. God brings out this ragtag group of people and he brings them to his holy mountain and he says, you are my treasured possession. You are my chosen people. Israel, I am your father and you are my son. I love you. I have chosen you. I have redeemed you. I have brought you to myself. See, redemption precedes rules. Grace comes before law. God God doesn't say, live this way, and then I'll bring you out of slavery. He says, I've brought you out of slavery, so live this way. Because this is how redeemed people live. This is how free people live. We don't obey to try to make God love us. We obey because God loves us. We don't obey to try to redeem ourselves. We obey because God has already redeemed us. Because he has poured out his grace on us. Because he has liberated us. And now he calls us to live as the free men and women that he created and redeemed us to be. God's law is rooted in his grace. Second thing you see, God's law is rooted in his character. It's rooted in his character. Again, verse 2, he starts off, I am the Lord your God. He says, don't forget who I am, because this whole thing flows from who I am. Remember what we saw last week, Exodus 19. Why does God call his people? He says, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. I'm going to make you a holy nation. Leviticus 19.2, you shall be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. He says, I've rescued you and I've redeemed you and I've brought you to myself to make you a kingdom of priests. In other words, you are my special treasured people who will reflect the beauty of who I am and show the world what I am like and by extension, show the world what it means to be truly human. That's why he gives us his law because God created human beings in his image to be reflections of who he is. And he gives us this law to show us what he is like and how we, as reflections of the image of God, live the fully human life that he created us to live. His law is rooted in his grace. His law is rooted in his character. Third, God's law is rooted in our good. It's rooted in our good. And and what I want to do is I really want to camp here for the majority of our time because, because this is a foreign concept to so many of us. God's law is rooted in our good. Take, take these, these 10 words. These are kind of like, to shift the analogy just a little bit, they're, they're like the bill of rights for God's people. God didn't give these commandments to crush our freedom. He gave these commandments to ensure our freedom. And here's what's interesting. If you look at this bill of rights, this bill of rights is not primarily about your rights. It's primarily about the rights of others. That's what God is building here. God is building a people. God is building a counterculture where people are not simply concerned about their own individual rights, but are concerned about the flourishing and the rights and the well-being of others. So what we're going to do is we're going we're to walk through these commandments, and we don't have time. Most people, when they're doing this, they preach like one sermon on each of the commandments. We're going to do them all together this morning. So we're going to do kind of a flyover But but what I want to do is I want us to look at it and I want us to see how God's law promotes our freedom and our flourishing. All right, first commandment, verse three. You shall have no other gods before me. This is really interesting because if you look at the Ten Commandments, they don't start with my rights. 
And they don't even start with your rights. They start with God's rights. Because human rights are rooted in God's rights. And if you ignore God's rights, you eventually deny human rights. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a a Russian novelist. He was a historian um, in the former Soviet Union, spent years of his life in prison camps in the USSR because of his criticism of Stalin and other Soviet leaders. And he gave this fascinating speech in 1983 where he's, he's analyzing the causes of all the oppression he saw, not just in the, in the Soviet Union, but, but it, throughout the world in the 20th century. Like what created the gulag? What created the Holocaust? What created two world wars and the killing fields of Cambodia? This is what he says. He says, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. The failings of human consciousness deprived of its divine dimension have been a determining factor in all the major crimes of this century. See, when you ignore the rights of God, it's not long before you begin ignoring the rights of his image bearers. That's what, that's what happened back in Egypt. Pharaoh has set himself up as a god. He says, Exodus 5, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Pharaoh says, I don't recognize God's rights. I recognize my rights. I am your God. You worship me. And that's why this Bill of Rights starts with the first right, and that is God's right to exclusive worship. God's right to exclusive worship. You shall have no other gods before me. Because the truth is, everyone has a God. I don't know if you consider yourself religious or not, but the truth is, everyone has a God. We quote it all the time around here. David Foster Wallace famously said, everyone worships, the only choice we get is what we worship. As the great theologian Bob Dylan said, you're going to have to serve somebody. Takes every ounce of self-control not to sing that in my Dylan voice, but you're welcome. So um, the point is this, the point is this. You will give your life for something. Your life will revolve around some center of gravity. Authority abhors a vacuum. Something will be supreme in your life. And many of us have bought the lie that we are free when in fact we're enslaving ourselves to these false gods. And we do it without even knowing it. We worship our work, we worship our families, we worship our sexuality, we worship our reputations. We take these things and we make them the center of our identity. They become the center of gravity around which our lives revolve. And like all false gods, they demand more and more and they give less and less until they eventually destroy us. And so if we're going to live as the free men and women that God created and redeemed us to be, then we have to start by worshiping God and God alone. God has the right to exclusive worship. And the second bill, and this bill, right, the second uh, commandment is this. God has the right to define how he is worshiped. He has the right to define how he is worshiped. See, if God is God, then God gets to tell us not only that we should worship him, but how we should worship him. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, Now here's the background for this. In the ancient world, 
people would create images. They would create statues of the gods that they worshipped. And they didn't really think that the statue itself was the god, but that's how they worshipped the god. They worshipped the god by worshipping the statue. You can actually read ancient texts from ancient, from ancient Egypt that show how you're supposed, to, you're supposed to worship this image. You're supposed to worship the god by worshiping this image. And so you would take the statue and like literally you would wake it up and you would give it a bath and you would dress it and you would feed it. And in the afternoon, you'd bring it a beer. And then eventually, like I'm not making that up, you bring it a beer and then you put it to bed. And how you treated the image was how you treated the god. See, when you come to the Bible, you see something radically different. God says, you don't make an image of me. I've already made an image of myself. There's roughly 7.7 billion of them in the world today. And how you treat them is how you treat me. You treat them with dignity and respect. You treat me with dignity and respect. We, we have, uh, John Calvin famously said, the heart is an idle factor. We're constantly making idols in our heart. We're constantly remaking God in our image. God says, you've got to worship me in the way that I, that, that, that I, that I set forth. Um, complete opposite of John Calvin, Voltaire, the French philosopher, said it this way. He said, in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since see that all around us. We see that in our own hearts. We see that in ancient Egypt. That's what Pharaoh was doing. He was remaking the gods in his own image. You're going to get to Exodus 32 in a few weeks, and you're going to see the Israelites doing this same thing, remaking God in the image of a cow and bowing down to him. This is why our worship must be driven by the word of God, because God has spoken. He has told us who he is, and he has told us, this is how you worship me. He has the right to our worship. He has the right to tell us how to worship him. Thirdly, God has a right to his name. His right to his name. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, most of us have, have heard this kind of preached or, or applied and said, you know, you shouldn't use God's name as a curse word. And that's true. That, that's definitely true. We only speak the name of God with reverence. But that's not really what this commandment is about. Again, in the ancient world, the name of the God was considered extremely powerful. So you, if you had the name of the God, you could use it for magical purposes. It was kind of like a talisman. You could, you could cast a spell on your enemy. You could call down rain for your crops. It was a way of manipulating the God's power for your own purposes. And the Lord says, don't you dare take my name in vain. Don't try to use my name for your own selfish agenda. Don't try to manipulate me for your own purposes. Now, odds are you're probably not running around casting spells on people today. Uh, if you are, we're glad that you're here. Um, but, no, seriously, we are. But we live in a culture. We live in a culture where people are constantly taking the name of the Lord, their God, in vain. We, we do this all the time. If you, if you doubt this, pull up facebook wait till you're wait till we're out of here but like pull up facebook pull up pull up social media we co-opt the name of god for our own purposes we redefine god to fit into our agendas we do it in our politics on the right and on the left we do it in social media we do it in our personal relationships and here's how it comes out if you really love god if you really believe god then you would vote like i vote 
If you really believed God, then you would affirm what I affirm. If you really believed God, you would accept the things that I accept, and you would reject the things that I reject. If you really believed God, you would see it my way. And what we do, it's very subtle, but we take our own agendas and we baptize them in God language. God says, be careful. Be careful. Do not co-opt my name for your own agenda. I will not be redefined by your agenda. I will not be forced into a box that you create for me. I am the Lord. God's right to his own name. Fourth, God's right to our trust. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." did a whole series on Sabbath back in January, so I'm not going to rehash all of that here. But, but the point is this. God deserves our trust. He's God. He loves us, and he provides for us. He is our Father. We are his children. He is our God. We are his people. And so we can trust him to take care of us. And practically, the way that that works is we stop working to rest and to worship him. Because we don't ultimately trust in our work. We trust in his grace. And by the way, this isn't just your privilege to stop and work. This isn't just a privilege for the wealthy and the powerful. This isn't just about your right to worship and rest. This is about your neighbor's right to worship and rest. Like, read this. Like, even the cows are resting on the Sabbath here. As far as I can tell, the Sabbath is, is the oldest, the, the first social justice legislation in the history of the world. But what, isn't that interesting? The oldest social justice legislation in the history of the world is grounded in the worship of the one true God. Because we worship a God who created human beings in his image. And because of that, we treat human beings with dignity and respect. And we want to ensure that they can rest and they can worship. So we begin with God's rights. How are we called to love God? And then it starts moving outward then. Once we start with God, then it moves outward a little bit. Uh, not just how do we love God, now how do we love our families? That's the fifth commandment. Your parents' right to respect. Your parents' right to respect. Verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Showing honor to parents is one of those things that enables societies to endure from generation to generation. Like, do you realize that? There is tremendous vulnerability within family relationships. And we tend to think about it only on one side. Children, right, obviously vulnerable. They can't feed themselves. They can't dress themselves. They can't bathe themselves. Utterly vulnerable to their parents. But as time goes on, that vulnerability starts to shift. And, and children become less and less vulnerable, and parents become more and more vulnerable. And that's the point of this command. God says, remember that your parents cared for you. They fed you. They bathed you. They didn't sleep for years on end, hypothetically speaking. But when you were at your most vulnerable. So be sure to care for them and honor them when they become more vulnerable. Now listen, 
This doesn't mean that you need to uncritically agree with everything that your parents say or do. And it certainly doesn't mean that you have to pretend that they were perfect. One of the things I've learned since becoming a parent is that, um, speaking maybe for myself, uh, a lot of us have no clue what we're doing. Uh, We're just making it, I hope I'm not the only one here, just trying to figure it out and do the best we can as we go along. And listen, I know, I know that some of you in this room have experienced abuse at the hands of your parents. I know that you have experienced times where your parents took advantage of your vulnerability and hurt you deeply. So please hear me. I am not saying you need to pretend those things didn't exist. And I am not saying you need to pretend that they were were perfect. And I'm not saying that you should pretend that you were hurt deeply. As a matter of fact, often the way to show respect, the way to show honor is to actually confront these things. Or the way to show honor is just to be honest about those things. And it is not a simple process. And so please, we want to be a community where we can process those things. Our pastors are available to talk with you. Your MC leaders, friends who are here. We don't want to pretend that that's an easy thing. So please don't hear this and say, well, I have to pretend like everything was perfect with my parents. But on the flip side, I also do want to recognize that we live in the midst of a culture that conditions us to devalue the generations that have gone before us. And someday, the shoe's going to be on the other foot, and our kids are going to be critiquing us, and the question is, what approach do we want them to have toward us? Honor your father and mother. Okay, that's only number five. We've got to fly here. So number six, the sixth commandment, your neighbor's right to life. You shall not murder. I'm not going to elaborate. Don't murder. We're moving on. Number seven, Your neighbor, your spouses, and and I say your neighbors, but not just your neighbors, specifically your closest neighbor, your spouse, your spouse's right to fidelity. You shall not commit adultery. And this is not because God is sexually repressed. This is because adultery shreds the fabric of a family. And in the process, it shreds the fabric of a society and it tears the fabric of your soul, and it tears the fabric of your spouse's soul. And some of you in this room have experienced that, and you are experiencing that, and I'm sorry. Don't commit adultery. Eight, your neighbor's right to property. You shall not steal. Again, I'm not going to elaborate. Moving on. Number nine, your neighbor's right to their reputation. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't slander people. Don't gossip about people, don't lie about people, don't do it in person, don't do it online. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Your neighbor has the right to their reputation. Number 10, your neighbor's right to your goodwill. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. In other words, my neighbor has the right to know that I have his or her best interests at heart, that I'm not secretly envying them or plotting against them or wishing that I had what they have, that they can trust me as their neighbor. That is fascinating to me because, like, how do you enforce that? How do you enforce that law? Here's what we, we typically think of laws as something we do or something we don't do, but this goes so much deeper. This goes down into the heart and says, what is your heart posture toward other people? See, God is a father who loves us, who wants the best for us. And he doesn't just want the best for us. He wants us to want the best for each other. 
As many of you guys know, I have three young kids. Uh, so that means I have roughly 32,000 toys in my house right now. Uh, we have like 17 Lightning McQueen action figures. And, and it is both fascinating and frustrating for me to watch my kids interact over these toys. Because nine times out of ten, what toy do they want? They want the exact toy that their sibling is playing with at that exact moment. Like, dude, we got 16 other Lightning McQueens for you to choose from. Why do you need this one right now? Why? Because they're little coveters. Like, they're, they're awesome. They're beautiful, wonderful, adorable, lovable little coveters. But every once in a while, I get a glimmer of hope, and I realize maybe I'm not a complete failure as a dad. I, I get a glimmer of hope. I see my son Owen's here. I see my son Owen share his toys with his little brother or his little sister. I see my kids share together and, and love each other and play well together instead of just wanting to grab what the other one has. And I'm being honest, those are the moments I live for as a dad. That's what our Father wants for us. He doesn't just want us to not murder and not steal. Like, that's a good start, but he wants to go deeper. He says, love each other deeply. Love each other from the heart. Honestly want the best for one another. He wants to set us free from our self-absorption and liberate us to love each other deeply from the heart. Because yeah, my kids are little coveters, but I, if I'm honest, I'm a big coveter. And I've learned to hide it a little better than they have, but I still covet what my neighbor has. And so do you. So what is it for you? What are you coveting? What do you desire? What do you desire to grasp that your neighbor has? Probably not their ox or their donkey. Um, this is Indiana. The pharaoh was in town, so I don't want to rule that out. Maybe that is what it is in your life this week. But, but what is it? Could be their spouse. Could be their career. Could be their travel itinerary, or their social networks, or their physical attractiveness, or their income bracket, or any number of different things. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that we all fall into this. We have hearts that don't want the best for other people. We have hearts that are much more concerned about our own desires than the good of others. And that leads us to the final thing that we see about the law of God. God's law shows us our need. God's law shows us our need. This is fascinating. The law begins with God's grace, and the law shows us our need for more of God's grace. Verse 18, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpets and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. God shows up. He shows up in lightning and thunder and fire. Like, do you get the impression God is serious here? And so what do they do? They run away. They hide, they shrink back, they come face to face with God and they realize we can't do this. We might be able to keep it together on the outside. Maybe we can do a few religious rituals or, or, or do, a, do, a, do a few uh, uh, ceremonies over here. But you're talking about loving God and worshiping him like he deserves. You're talking about loving people from the heart. We can't, they're terrified. And they run away and they stand far off. And then Moses says this, verse 20, Do not fear, 
For God has come to test you that the fear of him might be before you that you may not. So it's like, don't fear because God wants you to fear him. What does that even mean? What, what are you talking about, Moses? What does it mean to fear God? Here's what it means to fear God. You hear this all over the Bible. It means that we take God seriously. That we take him more seriously than anything else in the world. That we recognize that he is holy. That we recognize this is not a God to be trifled with. When I think of the fear of God, uh, I think of Niagara Falls. Many of you guys know I grew up in, in western New York State. Uh, the only reason most people go to that part of the country is to see Niagara Falls. And so if you've ever been in Niagara Falls, you know that it is awesome. Like it is awe-inspiring in the true sense of the world, word. There are over 700,000 gallons of water that flow over Niagara Falls every second. Every second. And as awe-inspiring as that is, there's also a fear that comes with it. So I remember as a kid, we would go to Niagara Falls on New Year's Eve, and, and um, there was this mist that rises from the falls, and of course, it's, it's winter in western New York, and so the mist freezes, and it creates this layer of ice over everything. It was beautiful. I mean, it was breathtakingly beautiful. But it was also dangerous. And so as kids, of course, we want to get as close as possible to the falls, and so we're climbing up on these icy guardrails that are the only thing separating us from 700,000 gallons of water per second. Thankfully, my parents were responsible adults, and they were like, hey, get down, take this seriously, because people who don't take this seriously wind up dead. Now, if that's true, if that's true of Niagara Falls, how much more true of that is that of the God who made Niagara Falls? This is a great God. He is majestic and holy and beautiful, but he is not a God to be taken lightly. And the people see this, and they're terrified, and they run away, but then this happens, verse 21. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Moses drew near. Moses goes into the darkness to speak to God on behalf of the people, and he speaks to the people on behalf of God. If you read the book, the book of Exodus, you see this pattern over and over. Moses stands as a mediator between God and his people. And in a few chapters, you're actually going to see God's going to implement this whole institution. He's going to implement the priesthood to stand as a mediator between God and his people because the people know God is holy and we are sinful and we need someone to reconcile. We need someone to make peace between us and God. But what you find as you read the rest of the book of Exodus and as you read the rest of the Hebrew scriptures is that none of these mediators is able to completely get the job done. None of them can bring the people into the presence of God because they are all sinful men who also need someone to make peace. They need someone to take away their sin and make peace between them and God. They need someone to change their hearts because even the greatest of them don't love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and don't love their neighbors as themselves. And they are longing, the people of God are longing for someone to make them new. Not just on the outside, but in the core of their being. And then a thousand years later, God promises this, Jeremiah 31. He says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
people. God says the law is not just going to be written on tablets of stone. It's going to be written on your hearts, and I'm going to teach you to love me and to love each other from the heart. And he makes this promise, and there's another 500 years that pass until eventually we, we, we meet one who has the law written on his heart, who delights to keep the law of God, who loves God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, who loves his neighbor as himself, who loves God and loves his neighbor so much that he lays down his life for them. And he dies and he rises again and he promises to fill his people with his spirit so that they can have the law written on their hearts. He makes peace between us and God. And even when we see how we have failed to keep the law of God, his death and resurrection reminds us that we can come into the presence of God. Hebrews 4, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That is a terrifying reality. Some of you, maybe, maybe you feel that. Maybe you've felt that in your life. Maybe you feel that right now. You come and you see the law of God or you see the word of God and, and you're naked and laid bare and there is nowhere to hide because his word exposes us. And it doesn't just expose the outward things. It gets into the, to, to the, to the corners of our heart that we try to hide from everyone, even ourselves. It doesn't just expose what we do. It exposes why we do it. It exposes our thoughts and our motives, and that is a terrifying thing. And so what do we do? Some of us run away. Some of you right now are feeling like, I need to run away from this God. I need to get as far away as I can. I need to numb myself. I need to forget about this somehow. I need to forget about this God who sees me as I really am. But through Jesus, God says, you don't have to keep running from me. You can run to me. Let me show you that, Hebrews 4, 14, the very next verse. Since then, we have a great high priest, a mediator, one who makes peace between God and man. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He says you feel like you have broken the law of God. You have broken the word of God. You have decided to be your own God. And yes, God is a terrifying reality, but there's an even greater reality. It's the fact that he invites you through the death and resurrection of Jesus to come to him and find not judgment and not destruction and not condemnation, but to find mercy and to find grace to help in your time of need. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. 
says you and I need something more powerful than the law. It's not that the law is bad. The law is good. But it's not powerful enough to save. And if all you're trying to do is just do some external religion, if all you're trying to do is just try to turn over a new leaf and be a new person, that will never be powerful enough to change you at the core of who you are. But Paul says God has done what we in our own strength trying to obey the law couldn't do. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law that we have broken. He reconciles us to the Father and he places his spirit within us to help us to keep the law of God, to empower us to live the fully human life that he created for, to help us to live as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He gives us grace to follow him as we seek to live that way and he gives us grace to forgive us when we fail to do so. So that's why we're going to come to the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. And as you come to the Lord's Supper and as you consider all of these things, come to the Lord's Supper knowing that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're trusting in that. Not if you're trusting in your own ability to obey. Not if you're trusting in, in the way that you've kind of cleaned yourself up and now you've made yourself presentable to God and other people. No, if you are trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection, then we invite you to come and to eat and drink today and celebrate the freedom that we have in Jesus. Freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, freedom from condemnation, freedom from the power of these false gods that used to rule us, freedom to come to God and to live the truly human life that he created us for. So we're going to celebrate that. We'll have stations at the front. We'll have stations in the back. Folks in the balcony, you guys can go to your left down the stairs and in the gallery, uh, there will be the elements there, the, the, the bread and the, and the cup for you guys to take. And so we're going to come and we simply come and we tear off a piece of the bread and we dip it in the cup and we take it and return to our seats. Maybe you're here, you're not a follower of Jesus. And maybe you're here and you're just checking these things out. And, and, and we invite you just to remain in your seat while others come to take the bread and the cup. That is not because we think we are any better in any way, shape, or form than you. But what it does mean is we don't just want you to feel like you have to do some perfunctory religious duty or like some perfunctory religious duty is going to make you right with God. And so we invite you just to take some space for yourself and to consider what's holding me back from trusting this God? What's holding me back from following this God? So if you've got questions about that, we'd love to speak with you after the service. Let's pray. We'll take the Lord's Supper. Father, you have created us in your image. You have created us for your glory. You've created us to live as reflections of who you are. And yet so often we don't do that. So often, if, if I'm honest with myself, my heart is far from you. My heart is far from my neighbor. We don't love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't love our neighbors as ourselves. But we thank you that you have loved us anyway. That you sent your son to die in our place, to rise again, to live the life we should have lived, die the death we deserve to die, rise again, to reconcile us, to make peace between us and you. Lord, we want to follow you. We want to live the truly human life that you have created us for. Thank you that you've placed your spirit within us. We confess that we often don't. And so we thank you for the body of Jesus broken for us and the blood of Jesus shed for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.